Um, God is so good, is he not? Isn't God good? I mean, he really is. I mean, it's beautiful outside. This is the day he made, and let us rejoice in it, right? Listen, last week, again, my name's Scott Johnson, and I'm pastor here of Calvary here in La Junta. And uh, last week, if you've been with us, we've been in um, the book of Acts. We just really started just a few weeks ago. We haven't gotten very far. We're still in chapter 2. The last week when we looked at one of the greatest days in the history of the universe, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, and to remind us of the fact of the power and the need of the Holy Spirit, I want to read from what John Stott, the great pastor and theologian John Stott says. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Let's keep in mind that Jesus himself was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit when he began his earthly ministry, and we cannot overemphasize the importance that day of Pentecost has had on us as his church. God in his wonderful sovereignty, I struggle with this word, sorry, sovereignty orchestrated the timing of this just perfectly. A very popular festival, the Feast of Weeks, had gathered a great multitude from every direction around Jerusalem. Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit that he had promised to send. Now the disciples, they had to be asking themselves, how will we know when the Spirit has come? And Jesus would have answered, oh, don't worry. Don't worry, you'll know when he comes. It will be very apparent. I will leave no doubt. And as we saw last week, the Holy Spirit came and created enough of a commotion that it gathered a large crowd from the festival attendees. Just as the Lord had planned 50 days after Passover. And that was the last Passover meal that Jesus would eat with his disciples until we his bride, the church, are gathered with him at the wedding banquet in heaven. Now the Spirit has come, and he has rested and filled all of the 120 disciples that were there in that room. And as Paul later wrote in the letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he says, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. You have heard in this life that there are no guarantees, but if you are in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the greatest guarantee you can ever have. Your eternal life. 
Now as we turn to our passage this morning, we see it is time for Peter to announce to the multitude that God has assembled this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we think of this time, don't you wish you could have been there to witness it firsthand? I'm going to ask you this morning to allow yourself to be there through the words of Luke as he recounts Peter's message. Let's pray, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we, again, we come before you, Lord, and we're just grateful for your word. We're grateful for this great passage, this great message of Peter, Lord. But let us be reminded that this is not about Peter, and it's not about us, but it is about you and what you did. Lord, I pray that we would get that from this message this morning, that your Spirit, Lord, your Holy Spirit will speak through me into the hearts of all of us here today. Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us today through the power of your word here in Acts chapter 2. We praise you and thank you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have a really long passage this morning, Acts chapter 2, 14 through 41. So I asked Sherry to read the first part of that so I wouldn't have to read it again. You know, we'll go through it piece by piece, but this, the message that Sherry read, let's take note of just a couple of things. We notice that it was Peter, out of all the disciples, he was the one who took the lead. He was the lead apostle, if you will. And Peter reminds the people that it is only 9 a.m. It is only 9 a.m., so it is absurd to think that these people who are wandering around and speaking in different tongues are drunk. Now in La Junta, we know that we have seen people drunk at 9 a.m., and really, probably, if some of us were honest, some of us might have been drunk at 9 a.m. at one time or another. I might have been drunk at 9 a.m. at one time or another, but just so you know, not any time within the last 20 years, okay? So, but I understand how you would think that because people are walking around like they're crazy. But the Jews, even at 9 a.m., they hadn't even eaten yet. They would not have been drunk. And they would have known that. And then Peter quotes, he quotes from Joel 2, 28-32 to show them that the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy speaks to all the craziness that is happening around there. Now, Peter makes a couple of changes from the original text. He changes verse 28 to read that in the last days it shall be, instead of it shall come to pass. So let's read verse 14 in our passage. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what we uttered, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. <coughs> Excuse me. And your old men shall dream dreams. You see that? He said, in the last days. Now, this is important for us to take note of. It might seem that it's a subtle change, but we have to remember that we are now in these last days. 
The last days mean this is the time from Jesus' ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit until His return. And we are currently living in these last days. This is the time when God is gathering His church together. And we see that even now in this passage about how God is the one who orchestrated the festival of weeks and brought all of these people to Jerusalem so that they would be there when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 and they would come and be gathered and hear the commotion and hear the words of Peter. This is amazing. Nothing is out of God's hand. He is sovereign over all of this. None of this is about us. The first sign of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is in verse 17 when God will pour out His Holy Spirit on all flesh. And this brings up a question. Does this mean that Peter is saying through Joel that the Holy Spirit will be given to everybody regardless of their faith? Whether or not they are Christians. Let me just answer that and make everyone at ease. No, that's not what he's saying at all. It means that with Jesus' death, his resurrection, and now his ascension, salvation is open to everyone, regardless of race, gender, economic, or societal position. If a person places their faith in Christ alone, they will have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They will be filled. And as we read earlier from Paul in Ephesians, this is a guaranteed fact, and it seals us in Christ as his child. Now last week I think I said that God puts a piece of himself in each believer with the Holy Spirit. And I want to correct myself slightly because what may seem minor actually is bigger than you might think. So when the Spirit of God comes and fills a believer, you do not get just a piece of the Spirit. So if I said that and I did not make this clear, then I apologize. You get all of the Spirit. All of the Spirit fills us and seals us. We receive all of our inheritance in the kingdom, not just a portion of it. We all receive all of the Spirit, and we all inherit all of our inheritance. Because the Holy Spirit is God Himself. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent and He is omnipotent. He is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. And as we go further into this passage, Peter will provide the answer to this question. Well, what, what do we do with this information? Now, the second part of Joel's prophecy in verses 17 and 18 say this, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So what in the world does this mean? Now we could spend a lot of time deciphering each piece of this and its meaning. But that's not the point of Peter's long message. Peter's point, as we will see, is that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He is the one. He is the Messiah they have been waiting for. 
Well, what does this mean that everyone then will prophesy? You didn't answer that question. I didn't yet. But here's what Martin Luther said about this. He said that the prophecy here is the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. It is the understanding of the gospel and to make it burn. So that when we speak it to people as believers, as carriers of the gospel, we can help them understand what the meaning of the word is. John Calvin said this. He says it signifies simply the rare and excellent gift of understanding. Simply put, each believer, including all of us, have been given the joy of knowing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation only comes by putting our faith and trust in Him alone. Our works cannot save us. Remember that long series in Galatians? We went over that time and time again. And now that we know who Jesus is, it is our commission by God to make Jesus known by the power of His Word and His Gospel. To make Jesus non-ignorable. To be sure, this Gospel is now open, as we said, to all people. To Jew, Gentile, to rich, poor, to young, to old, to men and women. Gender, ethnicity, economic status, and none of that matters. Because we're all sinners in need of God's grace. So in some way, all of us are prophets because we bring understanding to those who don't know God's Word. We help them to see the meaning of God's Word because the power of the Holy Spirit allows us to do so. So then what about visions and dreams? What about that, Scott? Again, just keeping in mind, this is not the center of Peter's message. But he did quote this from Joel, so we'll go over it. And as we go forward in Acts, we're going to see that visions and dreams occur. Peter has one in Acts 10. Paul's vision of Jesus that leads to his salvation is in Acts 9. Revelation was a vision written down by John. And we even see these in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis, Jacob saw angels descending up and down a ladder-like structure in Genesis chapter 28. Now, what about our time? Do we still see visions and dreams during our time? As we talked about in Sunday school today, if you were in Sunday school, that yes, we hear of visions and dreams happening all over the world. There are reports, even in our time, of in Muslim countries that that. Jesus is showing up in dreams to Muslims because there's no gospel witness there. And he's revealing themselves and people are coming to Christ because of it. There is a book that I love and it's called The Insanity of God. And it was written by a guy named Nick Ripkin. That's not his real name. Now there's also a a DVD of this book, but I'm just going to tell you, you should get this book and read the book and not watch the movie. The movie's good. The book is way better, okay? I've given out about 20 copies of this book. If you want one, let me know, and I'll order you one and get you one. But this is a great book, and he records several stories that he heard as he traveled in places 
where people were being persecuted for their faith. And I want to read you two short paragraphs about two such stories. Now, to set this up, he's in a Muslim country, and he's talking to five Muslim men, and I'm just going to tell you about two of them. He says, one of the five men told me I dreamed about a blue book. I was driven, consumed really by the message of the dream. Look for this book, the dream said. Read this Bible. And I began a secret search. But I could not find a book like that anywhere in my country. Then one day I walked in a Quranic bookstore and saw the sea of green books lining the walls. I noticed a book of a different color on a shelf in the back of the store. So I walked back there and pulled out this thick blue volume to discover that it was a Bible. It was published in my own national language. Imagine that. I actually bought a Bible in the Islamic bookstore, took it home, and read it five times. That's how I came to know Jesus. We have, I want to read the Bible in a year, and we can't even do that. And this man read the Bible five straight times. It doesn't say how long it took him, but probably not that long. The next one is similar. Another one told me, I dreamed about finding Jesus, but I, I didn't even know how or where to look. Then one day I was walking through the market when a man I had never seen before came up to me in the crowd. He said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you this book. And he handed him a Bible and disappeared into the crowd. I never saw him again. But I read the Bible he gave me three times from cover to cover, and that's how I came to know and follow Jesus. And then Ripken says this. He says, after hearing their stories, I felt drawn to open the book of Acts. And with an entirely different point of view, I began to read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And for the first time in my life, I read the passage and I wondered, how in the world did an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a man of color, and a foreigner get a copy of a scroll containing the book of Isaiah? Because that was not done in those times. They were incredibly expensive. And then he says, this had bothered him as he was praying, and he said, in fact, it was so extraordinary and unlikely that I blurted out a question. Where did this man get a copy of your word, Lord? And in reply, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. I've been doing this a long time. If you take my word out into the world, I will get it to the right place. And then he says, he said this, he said, <clears throat> reading from the book of Acts that evening was a completely new experience. Two thoughts stayed in my mind, and that is what God did then. That's what God did then, and this is what God does now. Suddenly, my modern world didn't look that different from the world of the Bible. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
he never changes. We would like to think he does, but he doesn't, and we can count on him. He is the same. God will get his word into the right hands, and it will do his work. He will call his church to himself. There is no doubt of that. Now, I do want to also caution us on visions and dreams and not to rely on them too much. Because they are rare. And they must line up with Scripture. And if they don't, then we should be cautious of them. We should throw them away. Because everything must be in the line of Scripture. In the lens of Scripture, we view everything. There are no new prophecies in the Bible. It's a closed book from Genesis to Revelation. So if you hear or think of something or hear someone tell you that there is something that they said that is not in Scripture, then be very, very cautious of it. Because it is not from God. And if you are unsure, then come to me and ask me. And we'll go through it together and we'll figure it out. But here, here is the biggest takeaway from this section of Peter's message that Luke wrote for us. Because it's not about us. <coughs> it's not about any signs and wonders that we can perform or how many languages or tongues that we can speak in. It's about God. It's about His Holy Spirit. Peter was just an uneducated fisherman before he met Jesus. He had no seminary training. Now, he did have some Bible school from his childhood, but there was nothing extraordinary about him or any of the other 12 apostles. They were normal people with normal lives. And then they met Jesus, and everything changed. Everything changed. And when the Holy Spirit filled them, their lives changed even more. And it is in verse 21 where Peter is heading. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that brings us to our second point. Now that and we go into the second section in verses 22 through 36, that Peter declares Jesus as the Messiah. Starting in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart be glad and my tongue rejoice. My flesh also, also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. 
And then Peter goes on and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. In other words, God had made a covenant with David that David would always have one of his descendants sitting on the throne. Thus, leading to the Messiah, Jesus, who is, whose lineage Jesus came from. And for he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now listen to this. Listen to this. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the dagger. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This section is a lot, I know. But this is the heart of Peter's message. The message that God had given him. Remember, he had just received the Holy Spirit. He would not have been able to give this message just a few minutes before that. But now he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah they have all been waiting for. The one that all the law and the prophets had written about. We've got to remember that as we look at verses, these verses that, that Jesus is fully man and he is also fully God. And Peter points out that Jesus, the man, was used by God to perform mighty works and signs and wonders. And we see this with, with Jesus performing miracles by bringing sight to the blind, by bringing hearing to the deaf. He raised people from the dead. He healed sick people, including the unclean leper whom he touched. God used him in this way among the multitude who, we are, listen, who are now listening to Peter. They themselves are witnesses to these acts. Jesus the man, he was crucified according to God's plan. God's plan from before the beginning of time, but first revealed in Genesis 3.15, was that he would put enmity between the spirit or the serpent, Satan, and the woman and her offspring. He had to be fully human with a human body so that, he, that his body could die. Peter points out to the crowd that the Jews gathered together that they were the ones, they were the ones <coughs> who had hung Jesus on a tree. And to alleviate their own guilt, they used the Roman Gentiles to crucify him. Peter reminds them that some of these people that are in this multitude were probably in the crowd 
before Pilate yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But as Peter is telling him, this was the plan that the Lord had, and it had to come to pass. There was no other way. God had ordained Jesus' death on a Roman cross to take his wrath on himself instead of us taking it. Jesus' shed blood was by the holy and perfect will of his own Father. God raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah could not stay dead. Death could not hold Jesus. And this is the greatest event in history. Jesus' resurrection. The total defeat of death. Satan was now crushed. His fate was sealed. This is Jesus the Messiah. Our Lord and our Savior. Do you know Him? Does He know you? Then Peter once again, he goes to the Old Testament, and this time to the Psalms to point out what David had written was not about David, but that David had received a prophetic message regarding the coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus. Verses 25 and 28 in our passage, he's quoting Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Let me read those again. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then in verse 29, Peter reminds the crowd that David did die. He was buried because he's not Jesus. They could go see his tomb right now if they wanted to. So David had to be writing about someone else. And he was writing about the Messiah. Because it was Jesus whose soul was not abandoned to death, but was resurrected three days after his death. It was not subject to decay as our bodies and David's was. Jesus did not see corruption. In Jesus Christ alone, there is hope. There is hope in Christ. Because of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we have hope. We have hope. Without Christ, there's no hope. We would not be here. And our hope continues as we await His return to take us home and be with Him forever. I don't know about you, but that causes me to get pretty excited. I would tell you that the hairs of my head stand up, but they don't because, well, I don't have any. But if you have some, they should, right? We should get excited. Does this not get you excited to praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, the three in one? It should. It should. Simply put, Peter is attributing this passage written by David 
to Jesus' resurrection. And he says that all the people in the crowd were witnesses. Because remember, this only happened 47 days before this time. In verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was ascended. He was exalted to the right hand of his Father. He is the exalted Messiah. Jesus is the one they have been looking for. They have been looking for signs. Who would the Messiah be? Jesus is the Messiah. Who else could it possibly be? Verse 33, Peter says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Imagine being there and hearing and seeing what Peter is saying and experiencing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Jesus being exalted as the Messiah before them. This Jesus whom they crucified, but was resurrected and ascended. For David, starting in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In verses 34 and 35, Peter is now quoting Psalm 110.1. Once again, applying David's words to Jesus. And this time it was his exaltation, his ascension into his, to his father's right hand, where everything will be under his footstool. Jesus is the one. And then in verse 36, Peter really hits home. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Let all the house of Israel, and let me tell you, let all of us know for certain that God made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. There comes a point where all of us have been a part of his crucifixion. It was our sins who helped put him there. But we shouldn't feel remorse over this for us because Jesus did go to the cross for us. He did take the wrath of his Father. Now what do we do with this message? Well, if believers, we should be excited, right? We should be excited and rejoice that Jesus came And now He has sent His Spirit upon us. He kept His promise, and now we have hope. We have forgiveness. We have eternal life with our God and our Savior. We are a new creation made in the image of the Son of God. We are children of the King. We are a part of His church, His bride. We are no longer dead, but alive. Come on. It doesn't get any better than that. I wish I could tell you something better, but there is nothing better. Now for someone who might be hearing 
this message of Jesus for the first time, what do you do with this? Now Luke addresses that in this last section of verses 37 through 41. Verses, starting in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, What to them? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So then, how should someone respond? Well, let's take a look at what happened here. They were cut to the heart. They were full of sorrow. There was conviction. There was remorse over their part in sending Jesus to the cross. And again, we too should have some sorrow and conviction of our sins and remorse. But again, we can rejoice because we didn't have to go. Jesus has already done the work for us. He was obedient even to death on a cross. And if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, have I truly given my life over to Jesus or not? If this is you, then the crowd's question is one that you should be asking. What shall I do? And then we should heed Peter's response in verse 38 and 39. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's that word repent. <coughs> Sorry, still fighting the cold. <clears throat> repentance is not a bad word. I've said this before and I will say it again. Repentance is not a bad word. It is a beautiful gift from the Lord. Imagine if we didn't have the ability to repent. Repentance means, it simply means to turn from your current life of sin that leads to destruction and death and an eternity in hell and to turn around into the arms of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is waiting for you. In His arms, you will find life. You will find forgiveness and a transformation from your old life into a new life in Him. By placing your faith in Christ alone, you will receive the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle gives this explanation regarding what it looks like to be born again. He says, To be born again is to enter into a new existence, 
to have a new mind, to have a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likes, new dislikes, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God, ourselves, the world, the life to come, and salvation. It means to be transformed. You become a new creation. What you once were has now died, and you are raised again in new life in Christ. That is what it means to be born again. Born into the image of the Son of God. If you are here today, and you are not sure if you've ever been born again, if you have never given your life to Christ, and today is the day you want to do that, I urge you to not walk out of this room and not heed the words of Peter. Today you will call on the name of the Lord for your salvation. Listen. Come to me. Come to us this morning. Come to Dennis. And give your life to Christ if you haven't done so. And if you have given your life to Christ, well then you should be rejoicing. And you should take this message of hope that you have been commissioned to out those doors this morning and this week. Go find somebody who needs to hear this good news. The church was not to sit on its fannies in the pews and wait for people to come. The church was sent out to do this work. It was given the Holy Spirit to go. To go. To make disciples. To share the good news. To go to the lost. Yes, you're going to find people who are not going to want to hear from you. That's okay. Move on. They don't hate you. They hate Jesus. He said that. He said that's what you'll find. Go find someone who will listen to you. Because they're out there. Because God has called His people to Himself. Look at what happened here. Let us review again. The Feast of Weeks. A popular feast. In Jerusalem, God gathering His people. For what reason? To celebrate the Feast of Weeks? No. <coughs> Not this time. The coming of the Holy Spirit was coming. And God was going to build His church. And He brought them and He made a commotion when the Spirit came to draw people to what in the world is going on. And then He gave Peter this message to share. And it cut the people to the heart. And 3,000 people that day came to know Jesus as Savior. The church grew from 120 to 3,120 like that. Why? Because God is good. And He calls His people. You and I are people who are the beneficiaries of this day. If it wasn't for this day, we wouldn't be here. But because of them and their witness outward, we are here. Now it's time for us to go out there and bring them in here. This is the call that God has for us. 
And as we go through the book of Acts, as we continue to go through it, and next week our passage is much smaller, but oh, it's so powerful. As we see what the early church looked like, I pray that this church would understand that God wants to use you in a mighty and powerful way. I pray that you and I, because I am in this journey with you, that we would allow God, that we would pray that God would use us in ways that we can't even fathom. Because we have the same Spirit in us that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you understand what that means? We have all of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have God's authority to go and speak for Him. I don't care if the schools say, no, we can't talk about Jesus. I don't care if they tell us, no, in Walmart, you can't talk about Jesus. God said we can talk about Jesus. And God is the only one that matters. There are going to be days when it's going to be hard. And we're going to want to give up. Don't give up. God is at work. Don't believe the headlines that tell you that the church is dying. That Christianity is leaving the United States. No. God is at work. His bride will prevail. And we need to remember His promise and not what the world wants us to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your powerful word through Peter today, Lord. I pray, God, that we would understand that we too have been given a message to share. And no, we may not preach to thousands or have thousands come to know you through our message like Peter did because that was a one-time thing right there. But God, you are sending us out to find the one or the two or the ten however many. Lord, you are calling your church to yourself. And you will until you come back. Which, Lord, believe me, we are waiting for that day. We pray that it would be soon. But until that time, let us be the church, Lord. Let us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, go out into the world and share this good news, knowing that you are drawing your people to yourself. And we will find those who are willing to hear this message, Lord, who don't even know it yet. I pray, God, that you would help us to find success in sharing the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be participants in your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Lord, thank you for today. I pray, God, that our worship was a joy to you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.